Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Over the holidays this winter, I noticed a tweet from friend of the podcast and past guest Mary Robinette Kowal in which she asked herself this question. I wonder if I can reference plastic surgery in the 1960s. How early did it start? World War I, right? And then the tweet goes on to express her total astonishment that it was actually much, much earlier than that. I was astonished to learn that also, and I meant to make a note of that as something to look into when I got back into the office. But then, of course, with it being the holidays, I forgot. Fortunately, though, Mary Robinette dropped me a note with a name to look into, and that was Sashruta. Sashruta wrote the Sashruta Samhita, or Sashruta's Compendium, and that's one of the foundational texts of Ayurveda, which is India's traditional system of medicine. He is also known as the father of plastic surgery. Sashruta lived at least 2,600 years ago, although it might have been even longer. And that means that he was writing about medicine and surgery at least 200 years before Hippocrates, who's the person who usually gets the credit as being the father of medicine. So the oldest medical texts we know about today are Egyptian papyri that date back to between 2000 and 1500 BCE. But those texts are based on or copied from ones that are much older and have not survived until modern times, at least not that we have ever discovered yet. Perhaps it will be a future unearthed. (laughs) Uh, But these papyri document medical information that is at least 5,000 years old. One of these is the Edwin Smith Papyrus, which is the oldest known surgical document in the world and is named after the antiquities dealer who bought it in 1862. This papyrus was written sometime around 1600 BCE, but it's, like the others, believed to be a copy of a work that was at least a 1,000 years older. The Edwin Smith papyrus includes 48 case studies of wounds and trauma, and it details the treatments for these that include things like suturing, setting a broken nose, and preventing infections with honey. Given the types of trauma that it discusses, it was probably written for military use to deal with soldiers who had been injured in battle. The oldest descriptions of medicine and surgery in what's now India date to just after this, from the Vedic period, which spanned from roughly 1500 to 500 BCE. This is when the Sanskrit scriptures and hymns known as the Vedas went from being passed down orally to being written down. The word Veda translates to knowledge, and the Vedas are the oldest sacred texts in Hinduism. They're not really medical texts on their own, but they do contain a lot of references to medicine and surgery and pharmacology and physicians. This includes lists of thousands of drugs and descriptions of midwifery. The Rig Veda also includes descriptions of limb amputations during wartime and the use of iron prostheses in place of the amputated limbs. The Shashruta Samhita was written in the mid to late Vedic period, or possibly just after, so sometime between 1000 and 600 BCE. But we don't have a whole lot of detail about Shashruta himself. Under the cultural and religious traditions of the time, life was essentially an illusion, so documenting the lives of common people was generally regarded as vanity. And we don't even know his given name. Shashruta is an honorific, roughly translating to famous or renowned or well-heard. 
There is a Sushruta mentioned in the Mahabharata, which is one of ancient India's two major epics and also dates back to the Vedic period. In the Mahabharata, he's the son of a sage named Visvamitra. Among people who believe in transmigration, Visvamitra was an incarnation of Danvantari, who's an avatar of Vishnu and surgeon to the gods, and that would make Sushruta a descendant of the god of medicine. Sushruta may have been born in southeastern India, but he worked and taught in northern India near the Ganges River, in what was then known as Kashi or Benares. Today it's the city of Varanasi, and Varanasi is one of Hinduism's seven sacred cities. Although Siddhartha Gautama, or the Buddha, was born in Nepal, he began teaching in this same region of what is now India. And this part of India very important, is also known as the birthplace of Ayurveda, or the Vedic system of medicine. Going back to our earlier discussion of the Vedas, Ayurveda translates to knowledge of life. Listeners may have heard of Ayurveda, even if they've never been to India, because it's experienced a resurgence as part of complementary and alternative medicine. It is really not possible for us to give a thorough overview of Ayurveda in the context of this podcast. Especially in the West, it is often distilled down to the idea of using things like herbs and diet and lifestyle to promote equilibrium among the three doshas of vada or air, pitta or fire, and kapha or water. These three doshas connect back to the Hindu idea of prana, meaning life force or breath, and sometimes this is all compared to Hippocrates' idea of preserving the balance among the four humors. And this is not entirely a new comparison. When the Sashuta Samhita was first translated into English in the early 20th century, the introduction contained this note, quote, By a lamentable oversight, the terms vayu, pitam, kapha, and dosha have been translated as wind, bile, phlegm, and humor in the first few chapters. (laughs) I don't know why that makes me laugh so hard. I guess part of me is like... Did you realize partway through the chapters that you were doing it wrong and you couldn't walk it back? Or Questions for the ages. Although prana and the three doshas are part of the foundation of Ayurveda, they really don't sum up the whole thing. And even just that explanation of prana and the doshas is a very simplified one. Ayurveda is a complex, comprehensive, and holistic medical system that incorporates a mind-body connection, a focus on proper diet and the protection of a person's health, and it has three foundational texts. One is Sashruta's Compendium, another is the Sharaka Samhita, or Sharaka's Compendium, and Sashruta's Compendium includes both medicine and surgery, while Sharaka's builds on earlier work by a sage named Atreya and focuses only on medicine. Thanks to these compendia, Sashruta is known as the father of Ayurvedic surgery, and Sharaka is known as the father of Ayurvedic medicine. Sashruta and Sharaka are both believed to have been individual people, but the their two compendia are more like compilations of entire schools of medicine, really documenting and codifying the whole theory and practice of these two schools, rather than just one individual person's medical knowledge written down. The third classic Ayurvedic text is the Ashtanga Sagraha, which was an attempt to combine and unify the teachings of Sharaka and Sushruta. The Ashtanga Sagraha tries to reconcile the places where Sharaka and Sushruta disagree and resolve conflicts that had grown out of those disparities over the centuries. And this work dates back to the 2nd century BCE. It was created by Vagbada the Elder. 
Of course, there are other important texts as well. But together, Sashruta, Sharaka, and Vagbaha the Elder are known as the Three Ancients. And the three texts associated with them are known as the Great Trilogy of Ayurvedic Medicine or the Triad of the Ancients. And the centuries in which all of these works were created is known as the Golden Age of Ayurveda. Together, these texts cover everything. The general principles of medicine, anatomy and physiology, pathology, diagnostics, therapeutics, and pharmacology. And they incorporate eight branches of medicine, typically described as general medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, psychology, eyes, ears, nose, and throat, surgery, toxicology, and reproductive and sexual health. All of this knowledge grew out of medical traditions that had existed way before any of these documents were written down. So these were traditions that had either been passed down orally or written down in texts that haven't survived. So as is true in the rest of the world, Ayurveda grew out of folk medical practices that were revised and formalized and systematized through all of these and other texts. And we will talk more about the Sashruta Samhita after a brief sponsor break. In his compendium, Sashruta writes that theory without practice is like a bird with only one wing. And the Sashruta Samhita really reflects that belief. It is a comprehensive text documenting both the theory and the practice of Ayurvedic medicine and surgery, including the origins of Ayurveda and guidance on how students should be inducted into its study. Requirements for studying Ayurveda were exact. The caste system had started evolving by this point, and medical students were expected to be of the highest or twice-born castes. They were also to be, quote, possessed of a desire to learn, strength, energy of action, contentment, character, self-control, a good retentive memory, intellect, courage, purity of mind and body, and a simple and clear comprehension, command a clear insight into the things studied, and should be found to have been further graced with the necessary qualifications of thin lips, thin teeth, and thin tongue, and possessed of a straight nose, large, honest, intelligent eyes, with a benign contour of the mouth, and a contented frame of mind." being pleasant in his speech and dealings, and usually painstaking in his efforts. A man possessed of contrary attributes should not be admitted into the sacred precincts of medicine. This text totals 184 chapters, documenting more than a 1,000 medical conditions along with anatomy and physiology, pathology, diagnosis, and treatment. It details diseases of the nervous system, including epilepsy, sciatica, torticollis, and facial paralysis, along with other things like hemorrhoids, urinary calculi, fistulas, skin diseases, urinary tract diseases, scrofula, and a whole lot of eye diseases, including cataracts and descriptions for their surgical removal. The Sashruta Samhita also details practical midwifery, including using forceps during difficult births, performing cesarean sections, and removing fetuses that have died in the womb. It also discusses embryology and fetal development, along with guidance about when conception is most likely and how to encourage conception of a child of a particular sex. The text also includes information about the circulatory system, including descriptions of the heart, hypertension, and angina, which you may also say angina. It describes diabetes, connecting it to frequent urination that passes large amounts of sugar and is frequently associated with a patient's weight. 
There are also pages and pages of treatments for fevers, diarrhea, heart disease, tuberculosis, jaundice, fainting, alcoholism, vomiting, asthma, and worms. Some of these treatments are more religious or spiritual, and there are chapters on treating ailments brought on by demons and superhuman influences. But many are also practical, and the compendium includes a pharmacopoeia of 650 drugs, including nearly 400 plant substances, nearly 60 of animal origin, and 64 minerals. The Sushruta Samhita also describes how to determine whether an illness is medical or surgical. Sushruta believed that surgery was critical to Ayurveda, that it was not something that should be reserved as a last resort, and in some cases was the best and most efficient way to bring relief to a patient. He describes 300 different surgical procedures divided up into eight categories, which are incision, excision, scarification, puncturing, exploration, extraction, evacuation, and suturing. The text also lists 130 different surgical instruments, most of them named for the birds and other animals that they physically resemble. The techniques include using medicated wine and cannabis as anesthesia, using the mandibles of black ants to suture wounds, applying leeches after surgery to prevent clotting, and correctly dressing and bandaging surgical sites to prevent infection. This is also a teaching book, and Sushruta's students spent six years studying before they could practice on their own. And their surgical practice included really extensive use of what you might describe as skills labs, Although some of their practice used cadavers or animal carcasses, they also used a lot of non-animal substitutes for practice. This include practicing incisions on gourds and practicing probing using pieces of worm-eaten or rotten wood. They practiced bladder surgeries on animal bladders or leather bags filled with water, and they practiced venesection using water lily stalks. Students also studied anatomy through dissection, although due to cultural taboos, this wasn't generally performed with knives. Sashruta instead recommended submerging cadavers in water and examining the layers of the body as the tissues decomposed. Sashruta supplemented the anatomical knowledge from these cadaver studies with what he learned while performing surgery. Sashruta's most famous surgical category, and the one that earned him the name the father of plastic surgery, was rhinoplasty. In this period of Indian history, people lost their noses for a lot of different reasons, including battlefield injuries and late-stage syphilis. But cutting off a person's nose was also used as a punishment, especially in cases of adultery, sex crimes, and witchcraft. Women were particularly affected by this since they were often punished for adultery regardless of whether or not they were ultimately found guilty. We mentioned the Mahabharata earlier. India's other major epic, the Ramayana, describes Prince Lakshmana cutting off the nose of Lady Serpanaka as punishment and then arranging its reconstruction by royal physicians. Having one's nose cut off was, of course, an embarrassing and disfiguring form of punishment. It made it really obvious to everyone that you had been punished for a crime or at least suspected of one in a very public way. And this is also tied up in cultural ideas about the face and the nose and what they expressed about a person's worth and renown. I mean, we read that whole thing earlier in which people who were going to study Ayurveda were supposed to have straight noses. So also think about the whole concept of losing face. So there was a lot of demand for a way to reconstruct a person's nose after they had lost it. 
Sashruta documented a method of rhinoplasty that involved using a flap of skin from the cheek, keeping a small attachment to the cheek during healing. Here's how it is described in the Sashruta Samhita. First, the leaf of a creeper, long and broad enough to fully cover the whole of the severed or clipped-off part, should be gathered. And a patch of living flesh, equal in dimension to the preceding leaf, should be sliced off from down upward from the region off the cheek, and, after scarifying it with a knife, swiftly adhering to the severed nose. Then, the cool-headed physician should steadily tie it up with a bandage decent to look at and perfectly suited to the end for which it has been employed. The physician should make sure that the adhesion of the severed parts has been fully affected and then insert two small pipes into the nostrils to facilitate respiration and to prevent the adhesioned flesh from hanging down. The Sashruta Samhita then describes dusting the area with powders made from licorice, red sandalwood, and barberry, and then wrapping it in cotton soaked with sesame oil. It also describes what to do if the skin from the cheek doesn't adhere properly to the nose, and how to handle various other complications during the healing process, including what to do if the reconstructed nose is not the right length after healing. And this was not Sashruta's only technique that would be described as plastic surgery. As one example, he also wrote about using skin flaps to reconstruct missing or damaged earlobes. But this method of rhinoplasty lasted for millennia after Sashruta's death, and it's why he's known as the father of plastic surgery. We will talk about his legacy in the world of plastic surgery after another quick sponsor break. Sashruta's method of rhinoplasty continued to be practiced in India for centuries after his death. But because the Sashruta Samhita was written in Sanskrit on things like birch bark and palm leaves, the knowledge of how to do it didn't really move out of India and into the rest of the world really quickly. It does appear that Indian physicians traveled to other parts of the world, though. For example, Alexander the Great had Indian physicians at his court and also attempted to conquer India. It is possible that Indian physicians influenced the later work of people like Hippocrates and Galen. The Sashruta Samhita was also translated into Arabic in the 8th century, after the Arab conquest of the Indian province of Sindh. Europeans got their first glimpse of Indian rhinoplasty during the Third Anglo-Mysore War. A porter named Kawazji was working for the British, and he and four others had been taken prisoner by Tipu Sultan's soldiers. While imprisoned, all five men had their noses and one hand cut off, and they were eventually freed and later granted pensions by the British East India Company. For the curious, yes, that is the same Tipu Sultan whose rocket stash we talked about in Unearthed earlier uh, a couple weeks ago. About a year later, a British officer was in a market and met a merchant with a scar on his nose. And the officer asked about that scar, and the merchant said that he'd had his nose cut off as a punishment for adultery. He said his nose had been repaired by someone who did this procedure all the time. And we don't know anything about the person who did this reconstruction, other than that he was described as a potter or a brickmaker. When the officer came back with this story, the British decided to pay for the five men to have their noses reconstructed. And there might have been some benevolence at work here, but it was almost certainly also to demonstrate the British East India Company's generosity and to reinforce the idea that Tipu Sultan's army was using brutal methods against the British. 
Two British officers observed the procedure at least once, and they documented what they saw. This description of the procedure was printed in the Madras Gazette in 1793. Quote, A thin plate is fitted to the stump of the nose so as to make a nose of good appearance. Then it is flattened and laid on the forehead. A line is drawn around the wax, which is then of no further use. And the operator then dissects off as much skin as it covered, leaving undivided a small slip between the eyes. This slip preserves the circulation till an union has taken place between the new and old parts. The cicatrix of the stump of the nose is not paired off, and immediately behind this raw, parted through the skin which passes round both land, goes along the upper lip. The skin is now brought down from the forehead, and being twisted half round, its edge is inserted into the incision. A little terra japonica is softened with water, and being spread on slips of cloth, five or six of these are placed over each other to secure the joining. No other dressing but this cement is used for four days. It is then removed, and the cloths dipped in ghee, a kind of butter, are applied. The connecting slip of skin is divided about the 25th days, when a little more dissection is necessary to improve the appearance of the nose. For five or six days after the operation, the patient is made to lie on his back, and on the 10th day, bits of soft cloth are put into the nostrils to keep them sufficiently open. This operation is always successful. The artificial nose is secure and looks nearly as well as the natural one, nor is the scar visible on the forehead very observable after a length of time. So there are some tweaks, but this is really similar to Sestruda's method of rhinoplasty from thousands of years before, except that it uses a flap of skin from the forehead rather than the cheek. And we don't really know how or when surgeons in India made this shift from a cheek flap to a forehead flap. In the centuries leading up to the late 18th century, rhinoplasty had become a really closely guarded family secret, being handed down orally rather than written down. An account of this reconstruction, almost identical to the one that I just read, ran in the Gentleman's Magazine of London in October of 1794. In the years after that, British surgeon Joseph Constantine Carpew began trying the same procedure. He actually carried out London's first rhinoplasty using a forehead flap in 1816. The word rhinoplasty first appeared in writing in English in 1828, and plastic surgery followed in 1837. That year, North America's first forehead flap rhinoplasty was performed in Boston. The use of a forehead flap to reconstruct a nose has continued to be known as the Indian method. There is also an Italian method, refined by Gaspar Tagliacozzi in the 16th century. The Italian method used a flap of skin from the upper arm, requiring the patient to have their arm bandaged up above their head for about 20 days until their arm skin had attached from the nose and could be detached from their arm. So you'd kind of have your elbow out in the front of your head like a big beak. Honestly, this seems very cumbersome and inconvenient and uncomfortable to me, but that was the Italian method of rhinoplasty. I wonder if the idea was that there was some benefit to using that skin that maybe your so. facial skin may not have offered. I mean, to me, and I'm completely layperson, I have no knowledge, but to me, going with the forehead skin, which on most people is much thinner and has less subcutaneous fat versus cheek, seems like a weird transition, but but I yeah. don't know what the requirements are. So if anyone out there is a plastic surgeon, school me because I want to know. 
They may also have been wanting to avoid the potential of having two scars on a person's face. Yeah. But I did not look into it in detail because the the picture of the person with their arm bandaged with their elbow like a big old beak is just so comical that I couldn't get past it. kind of love it. We'll design clothes just for that. It'll be great. Uh, In the late 19th century, the Sashruta Samhita was also translated into Latin. Between 1907 and 1916, it was translated into English by Kavaraj Kunja Labashigratna, who consolidated the work's original five volumes down to three. And those are all online at archive.org. You can go read them all yourself and see lots of diagrams of surgical (laughs) instruments. There are a lot of them. Do you have listener mail to read yourself? I do. I have a quick follow-up to the ongoing saga of Charles Dickens' multiple households. This is from our Facebook from Kristen, and Kristen says, hey I just listened to the first Sojourner Truth episode and have an alternate answer to the listener mail question. This past December, I read The Man Who Invented Christmas by Leah Standiford and learned that Dickens was constantly having to send his parents money to keep them afloat due to their terrible financial management. This could have been the multiple households answer as well. Keep up the fantastic work, ladies. Thank you, Kristen. Apparently, Charles Dickens was just paying for a whole lot of people to keep their lives afloat. Busy. (laughs) Busy guy. Fortunately, by that point, he was making more money than immediately after that American tour that we talked about back at Christmas time. So thank you for sending us that note on Facebook. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missing History. That is where you'll find our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest. You can come to our website that is MissedInHistory.com and find a searchable archive of all the episodes we've ever done, show notes of all the episodes Holly and I have done together. The show notes for this episode will include links to all of those historical documents that you can read detailing the origins of Ayurveda. You can also find at our website a link to find out about our trip to Paris that we're taking this June. And you can also find and subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 